0: If you've been with us the last eight weeks, you know we've been in this uh, focus, the 50 days of uh, putting Jesus first, so we just concluded looking at Colossians chapters 1 and 2, and sort of we went through this series called Jesus First. Next week we're going to change our focus a little bit and move into Colossians 3 and 4, and the new series will be starting will be called Christ, Our Life, same, same book, why a different series. Well, chapters 1 and 2 are about who Jesus is. Chapters 3 and 4, the focus shifts to how we live in light of who Jesus is. And so you might say that that middle point in Colossians is a pivot point in the book. So think of this week as sort of a bridge between the two. And we're going to look at a parallel pivot point in the book of Philippians. It's the book right before Colossians. So you might want to take the study guide out of your worship folder, or if you want to just flip to it in your Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Now, in this passage, verses 5 through 11 are very familiar. I'm sure there's some of you that could quote these verses from memory. And they're often quoted standalone. But what I want to do this morning is look at these verses in the context because I think it shows us something interesting. So follow along as I read the passage to you. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, this passage is really about how we should live, but it contains one of the most profound statements about who Jesus is in all of Scripture, included as a parenthetical sidebar. I think that's very interesting. So we're going to study this in detail, and the way we're going to look at it is we're going to take the passage from the outside and work in, okay? So let's start first with how we should live. I think Paul is showing us five things in this passage about how we should live. The first one is in unity. Back to verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one Spirit and in one mind. Now what Paul is not saying here is some utopia where nobody ever disagrees and we all get along 100% of the time because that's not real life. What he's talking about is this, that we care about each other enough to work through our differences. See, love is the central component. It's sprinkled throughout those two verses. And then he mentions that common sharing in the spirit. You ever met someone, they're a believer in Christ, you don't know them? but you immediately have this bond with them. Why? That, that common sharing in the spirit that Paul's talking about right here. The second way I see that Paul's telling us to live is with humility. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So just how important are you? Do you see yourself as better than other people? Scripture is full of statements about humility and having humility. Let me give you a couple of quick ones. Isaiah 66, verse 2, this is God talking. He says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. James, in James chapter 4, verse 6, James' kind of direct way of talking to us says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. A third way. I see that Paul's telling us to live with consideration. He says, value others above yourselves, verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Ah, Human nature is to make ourselves the center of the universe, isn't it? But the kingdom of God always seems to be kind of upside down from human nature. Jesus talks about this Mark chapter 10, verse 42. And Jesus called to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now let me take just a second here. You know, you're know, starting to see a pattern developing here. All of these things all these three things so far, have to do with human relationships. They're relational in nature. And in fact, verse 5 tells us that really clearly. It says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Thus Paul's sidebar here, but we'll come back to that. The fourth thing I see what Paul's telling us about how we should live is becoming more like Jesus. Let's jump down to the middle of verse 12. It says, It says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act to fulfill his good purpose. What do these verses mean? Well, there's a lot of controversy about them. I probably looked at 20-plus commentaries on this getting ready for this weekend, and they are all over the map. Part of it is, for us, the English language gets in our way. First of all, you have to understand what some of the words are saying outside the context of English. It says, your salvation, work out your salvation. Okay, your doesn't mean you. We think of that as reading, work out my salvation. It's not singular, it's plural. In the Greek, all the you's and yours through this passage are plural. Think about it, the the context is relationships, right? So that makes perfect sense. So what it's saying is working out our collective salvation together in community, relational, then we get kind of messed up because people look at those words, work out, work out our salvation. The word that's translated work out is the Greek word ketergatsomai, which means to do something from which something results. Um, Kind of like working out the solution to a problem or a puzzle. Now, let's look at the work aspect of this for a sec. Jesus, there's Jesus' work first. See, from Christ's perspective, it's a done deal. When he was on the cross, what did he say? He said, it's finished. He didn't say, that's a good start. He didn't say, hey, I've done my part. Human race got to take it from here. He didn't say that. He said, it's finished. So there's people that look at this, and because of the word work, they're going, well, we have to do something to earn salvation. That's not what it's saying. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul makes it very clear. He says, by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, things that we've done, so that no one may boast. Now, the work's done by Jesus, but there's also a continuing process in us. From our perspective, we're on a journey. We're understanding more what it means. Back in Philippians 1, Paul says in verse 6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15.1 Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past, in which you stand, present, and by which you are being saved, ongoing, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. In fact, Paul also says in Romans 8, we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. You see, yes, Jesus' work is done, but in us, it's a process of becoming more like Jesus. Another place where we get messed up because of the English language is fear and trembling. So people say, see, we have to be afraid. We might not really be saved or we might be able to lose our salvation. That's not what the word is saying here. It's not fear like being afraid. It's fear like reverence and awe. Maybe I would say it this way. Having a healthy respect for what God has done for us. And then finally he says that God gives the believer both the desire, that's to will, and the energy to act, to obey. In fact, to act is the Greek word energeo, where we get our word energy from. Finally, the fifth thing I see in this about how we should live is without complaining Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. We love to complain, don't we? I can tell you I'm really good at it, too. Back in my younger days, I used to look for it in lunch every day at work so we could go gripe about how stupid our company was and all that stuff. Because clearly I could do it better than they could. Do things without complaining. It says, what's it say? You're going to be blameless and pure and without fault. And you're going to stand out, it says, to a warped and crooked generation. Now, that's Paul writing 2,000 years ago. You're going to stand out because it's going to be different than everybody else. And that brings me to the result. If we do these things Paul's telling us to do, what's the result? He says, we're going to shine like stars. He says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Who's the them? The warped and crooked generation guys. That's them. The world at large. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be like some Christian superstar. Look at me. Hey, I've I've got it all figured out. It means this. It's it's what Jesus said in Matthew 5.14. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put, put a light on a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, it's saying that we're going to show what Jesus is like through our lives, like stars in the sky. Everybody sees them. And then he says we're going to hold firmly to the word of life. We need to hold firmly to the word of life. What's that mean? Well, first of all, John 1 tells us the word is Jesus. The word and Jesus are the same thing. And in John 14, Jesus tells us he is life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. We need to hold fast to Jesus to be able to do this stuff. Which brings us back to the aside. Back in verse 6, who Jesus is. I see four things Paul's telling us here about who Jesus is. First of all, he's God. Now that might be one of the most controversial statements in all of history. Because everybody wants to argue that Jesus isn't God and he was just a good teacher and all this stuff. Verse 6 says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Paul says clearly, Jesus was God. John chapter 8, Jesus said it himself. He said, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You're going, that's not good grammar. You've got to understand what he's saying. I am being Yahweh, that holy name of God. That's why the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They didn't even say it. They wouldn't say that word. Just the fact that he said it was kind of an in-your-face thing. And the other thing is it's not used to his own advantage. In other words, not with vanity and conceit like Paul was saying back in verse 3. Second thing about who Jesus is I see here. He's a humble servant. It says he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus served others throughout his earthly ministry. We, we heard some of that kind of thing. The guy that they lowered down. Jesus is teaching. He didn't go, get out of here. He was moved by their faith. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is serving us even yet today, this very minute. He lives to make intercession for us. Interceding between us and a holy God acting as our mediator day in, day out. The third thing about who Jesus is, he became a man. He's being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. A key component of Jesus' mission was to die. And God can't die, so he had to become a man. It was the only way. And finally, the last thing I see here about who Jesus is, he is obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, think about this for a minute. He's obedient. What's that imply? He didn't want to do it. I mean, who wants to go to the cross? In the garden, it even tells us that. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, the cup being going to the cross. And just in case you miss it, a couple of verses down in verse 42, it says again, for the second time he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He's obedient. So what's the result we see of who Jesus is? God exalted him. Verses 9 to 11 tells us that. First of all, he exalted him to the highest place. Where is that? The right hand. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember the disciples, they were arguing about who is the greatest, and they're saying, hey, we want to sit at your right hand, Jesus. And he's going, it's not mine to give, it's the Father's, because they wanted the highest place. Well, God gave Jesus the highest place, the right hand of the Father. He also exalted him to the highest name, the name that's above every name. You read through the book of Acts, the disciples are doing miracles. What are they constantly saying? In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. In the name of Jesus, do this. They're, they're calling on the name of Jesus. Why? It's powerful because it's above every name. The highest name. Third thing. He exalted him to the highest honor. Verse 10. It tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge. Now let's think about that for a minute. Everyone. Anybody you want to think of. Genghis Khan. Caesar. Nero. Hitler, every atheist that ever lived, one day is going to bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone. And finally, he exalted to the highest purpose, to the glory of God the Father. We sang about that a while ago. I live to bring you glory. John 17, 1, I love this verse. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. He's going to go to the cross. Glorify your son. Why? That everybody can look at me and I'm great. No. That the son may glorify you. That's the highest purpose. So how do we respond to this? Well, a couple of things I think that we can look at this and take from what Paul's telling us about how we should live and what he's saying about who Jesus is. We can't do it alone, number one. We can't do it alone. We've got to follow Jesus' example. That's the whole point of this thing about who Jesus is. Paul's saying follow his example. Seek God's help. The last six months or so, God has been teaching me lessons of dependence on him. And what I've found during this time is I just feel like he's right close to me. Because I'm not looking to do it alone. You know, I'm one of those type A type people. I can do it all. You know, that's the American thing, right? Rugged individualism. You know, Bruce Willis or Harrison Ford or somebody. I can do it all. I don't need anybody else. You know what? That's not true and it's not scriptural. We need others. That's how God made us. We need God's help, and we need others too. You know, that's why we're telling people all the time, you know, what Pastor Steve said last week, almost nagging about getting in a small group. Well, why? You can't do it alone. That's why. And because you need Jesus, because there's other folks there to help point you back to Jesus. Now, that brings me to our prayer partners. Week in, week out, we started this, I don't know, six months or so ago, whatever it was, and... We have this ministry where folks are up here at the end and, and, and you can get prayed with. And I'm sure some of you are going, I don't know what that's all about. And, you know, I don't really need prayer and all these kinds of things. Here's what I'm going to challenge you with today take advantage of this. This is your way to get connected with God through other folks that are gifted, have some spiritual discernment. And I know a lot of you that have taken advantage of it, you've felt the touch of Christ on you because of it. If stuff's holding you back, you know, what is it? Maybe fear. Yeah, come down there. I don't know what that's going to be. I don't want to do that. Or maybe shame, you know. Joe, if I I told somebody what's really going on in my life, it just wouldn't be good. Or maybe pride. You go, well, you know, everybody will see me. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm going to speak truth to you. Those are lies right from the pit of hell. It's the way Satan wants to keep you under his thumb. Why? Because we want to hold on to all that stuff and not admit it, and it's the way that he keeps us in bondage. Tell someone and get free. Take advantage of it. It's here for you. You know, I'm down here a lot of weekends. You know, I long to pray with you, and so do these other folks. We want to use our gifts to try and help advance you in your, in your Christian walk. Take advantage of it. Second response, we have to see ourselves the way God sees us. Now, how is that? Well, let me say this going in. If you're kind of the, oh, we all have to feel good about ourselves and all this, this is going to be a little harsh, but it's true. Romans 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, well, what's sin? Sin is things we've done wrong, things that are against God's law. And then in Romans 6 and verse 23, it says the wages of sin is death. A holy God cannot stand to be with sin. You say, well, Joe, that's not really good, very, you know, good news. That's harsh. It's truth. But it's not the end of the story. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That brings me to the third way we respond. Bow your knee and confess. Back to verse 10. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what? Someday every knee will bow. Some of us aren't waiting for that. We're starting now. Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You say, saved from what? You've been talking about salvation authors. What does that mean? Saved from what we deserve. Eternal death in hell. Now, I know for a lot of folks, you're going, yeah, hell's a myth, and you can't possibly believe that and all this sort of thing. Well, Jesus believed it. He talked about more hell more than he did about heaven. Unless you're going to say Jesus Christ is a liar, there's a real literal hell. And people who do not bow the knee are going to spend eternity there with an eternal death. But because of that bad news, here's the good news, the gospel story. Jesus came to earth as a man, gave up his kingly privileges. He humbled himself, just as we've seen in this passage. He lived the life we couldn't live because we're sinners, perfect without sin. He was obedient and going to death on a cross for you and for me, exchanging his sinless life to cover for our sinful ones. And he was raised back to life, victorious, defeating death to make a way for us to be with God forever. That's the good news. You have to believe in your heart. You have to say the words. Confess with your mouth. And by doing so, you can spend eternity in heaven with Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. Before we move forward, if you're here right now and you're just saying, Joe, well, you've been talking, God's been nudging me, knocking on the door of my heart. Will you just raise your hand and let me see? Wow, lots of us. Thank you, you can put them down. If you have a need today in your life, some way that you need God to work in you, prayer partners are going to be up here. Take advantage. We're going to have an extended time of worship. You've got time. Come. If God's nudging you, you've never bowed your knee. You've never said the words. You've never believed in your heart. Today's the day. Come and accept Jesus Christ in your heart. Believe and confess. Now, listen, I know the minute I say this, the enemy's working in people's minds. You can't do that, etc. Listen to me. Hebrews 4 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If he's knocking at the door, you come. God, today, I just ask for everyone here that's raised a hand, God, that they are going to feel a touch from you in these coming moments. God, I pray that for everyone who's got a need to live differently, to see a breakthrough in their life, God, let them experience some freedom today. God, if there's those folks in the room that have never bowed the knee to Jesus, may they come today and know the joy. Knowing for certain that they're going to spend eternity with you, God. We ask for that. God, I pray that you be with the ministry of the prayer partners as they're here today. Give them discernment and wisdom. May their ministry be powerful and effective. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.